2: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Thursday, August 9th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, find out why Mississippi is one of the states suing the federal government over an immigration program. Then, find out how Mississippi measures up to the nation on cancer policy.
3: There are two states in the country that, uh, with Mississippi being one of them, that have no green um, marks on their scorecard.
2: And in our book club, meet Mississippi author Julian Rankin with his new book, Catfish Dream. That's all next. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is among 10 states suing the federal government in an attempt to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, also known as DACA. On Tuesday, Judge Andrew Hannon in Brownsville, Texas, heard a motion to force the government to stop accepting new DACA applications and to provide renewals of current ones. The plaintiffs in Texas versus the United States are challenging the lawfulness of the six year old program that protects immigrants brought to the U.S. as children from deportation and grants them work permits. They say the program is unconstitutional and puts an undue burden on the states. Immigration advocates say the court should dismiss the case. Matt Steffi is professor of law at Mississippi College School of Law. He tells MPB's Ashley Norwood the case is one of a couple that could determine whether DACA could be continued or ended.
4: One important thing to bear in mind is that this is not the only DACA lawsuit. There have been a number of DACA lawsuits Uh, two of which that have made it through the appellate process and both required the government to continue at least renewing DACA applications for people who are already covered by the program. There was also a lawsuit in Washington where the judge ruled not only must renewals be processed, but also new applications. So this is one of at least four DACA lawsuits already going on. I think the purpose of this lawsuit could best be understood as trying to provide a vehicle to get the issue up before the U.S. Supreme Court. This is filed in Texas before what is understood to be perhaps the the judge in the United States most likely to rule against DACA. This is the judge that ruled against DAPA, T-A-P-A, which covered the parents of these children. This judge ruled that DAPA, D-A-P-A, was unconstitutional, a ruling upheld on appeal, and that died in the Supreme Court on a 4-4 tie. So the objective is to uh, do what lawyers call forum shopping, get in front of the friendliest judge they can identify, hope to get a ruling in their favor, and thereby create a conflict between this judge's ruling and the other at least three rulings that have come out in favor of DACA. And once there's a conflict among federal judges, it becomes much more likely that the Supreme Court will step in. And with the pending appointment of Judge Kavanaugh, the belief is that if the court hears this issue, they're more likely than ever to strike the program down.
0: Could you kind of talk about the people that would be harmed if that indeed does happen?
4: Again, it depends on how one views the matter, but the most immediate harm would be to children who have immigrated to the United States without proper documentation, who are then, if they are not already covered by some sort of a status, would be immediately subject to deportation. And the effects trickle out through the families of those particular children the communities where those children live, and, of course, to children who come in the future. So those are the people most directly affected. That's always the case, right, that the most directly affected people are the ones covered by the law at issue. If the law involves marriage, then the people most directly affected are people who want to get married. This involves children who were brought into the United States and children, by definition, rarely have much of a choice in where they're going or where they live. And the idea was that the children shouldn't be subject to deportation necessarily in the same way as adults, perhaps, who came into the country knowing that they lacked the proper documentation. So this will most directly affect the children now covered by the program, their parents and their families. It'll affect more indirectly the communities in which those children live, the law enforcement and others that serve those communities, and so on.
0: And how do you think that those um, who are a part of the program, how do you expect them to argue in this case?
4: Well, they're going to argue, among other things, that there's no reason for this particular handpicked federal judge to hear this lawsuit, as three other federal judges have heard a lawsuit, and indeed, the Attorney General of the United States is preparing to uh, put together an appeal from a ruling in Washington that would settle this issue for the country already. In other words, one of the arguments would be, first and foremost, that this issue has already been uh, resolved by a federal judge in a way that affects the whole country, that is getting the full attention of the Attorney General and. Therefore, there's no need to expend the judicial resources in having a duplicative lawsuit. But in this case, a duplicative lawsuit is the point, and the other side, the states challenging it, will say, Well, you know, we're, we have the right to be heard. They will point out whatever differences there are in who's bringing the lawsuit and why. You know, the truth of the matter is that the judge before whom this is argued would be correct in declining to hear the lawsuit, and would likely be held correct in deciding to hear it. Judges enjoy a lot of discretion, and I believe that either way, to hear it or not to hear it, is likely within this judge's discretion. And given this particular judge's record of being skeptical or hostile to these immigration programs, It would be very surprising if this judge refused to rule. The other argument one would make, and that is being made on behalf of children affected, is that this law is a necessary act of compassion for children who are in these circumstances, that all it does is defer administrative action. As we've seen recently in the news, you know, our system is simply not very well set up to deal with deporting children or with housing and, and caring for children and providing them representation while the process is going on. I believe everybody watching this expects this federal judge to rule against DACA and thereby create a conflict in the federal courts. So in the meantime, it creates a, a great deal of chaos.
0: Was there anything that I didn't ask you that you think is important to add to this story?
4: One of the ironic things is these constitutional arguments tend to be on their face, look to be divorced from the merits, but they are inextricably intertwined with the merits. For example, the very same people who were arguing against nationwide injunctions when it involved the case of a cake baker uh, who didn't want to create a wedding cake for a gay couple. One of the arguments in that case is, well, one judge should never decide the issue for the whole country. Well, now that's exactly what's being asked just on the other side of the political aisle. Now it appears that a nationwide injunction is just the thing. So I guess what I'm saying is that I think it's always better to engage the issues of policy directly rather than these indirect mechanisms about administrative law or uh, judicial injunctions. The other thing is, is that you know, immigration is meant as primarily a matter of federal law. It's interesting that this is brought on behalf of states who, when truth be told, have a much more secondary or modest stake in all this. Again, they may have significant interests in their local communities and, and all of that, but ultimately this is a matter of federal law. But this lawsuit is being brought by the states, and the program is not defended by the federal government, but instead by advocacy groups. So it's a very indirect and convoluted way to engage the question of immigration that we all know Congress has been avoiding for at least a decade.
0: Matt Steffi is a professor at Mississippi College Law. Thank you so much again for your time talking to us on this issue.
4: It's always my pleasure.
2: We reached out to Governor Phil Bryant, who was unavailable for comment. Judge Hannon did not say when he will rule on the case. Coming up, find out how Mississippi measures up to the nation on cancer policies. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Robin Young. As our Border Series continues, we'll meet a woman whose son was killed in an accident with an undocumented immigrant. It's not just us angel parents who have lost our children and who have been killed. It is thousands of Americans are affected every day by crimes. Her poignant story, but also what is true about crime and undocumented immigrants. Next time, here and now.
1: Today at noon on MPB Think Radio.
2: This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Mississippi is falling short when it comes to protecting kids from dangerous indoor tanning devices, according to a state-by-state report released today. The annual report, How Do You Measure Up?, a progress report on state legislative activity to reduce cancer incidence and mortality, illustrates where states stand on issues that play a critical role in reducing cancer incidence and death. The report measures nine specific policy actions that state legislatures can take to fight cancer. Kimberly Hughes is government relations director for the American Cancer Society's Cancer Action Network in Mississippi. She tells MPB's Kendra Wright more.
3: This is our 16th year of the How Do You Measure Up report that we are releasing, and um, it does focus on those different policy issues related to access to care and cancer prevention. The report is called How
0: Do We Measure Up?, but the press release says we're falling short so how are we
3: falling short in Mississippi? You're right we're falling short in in pretty much all of the categories that we measure um, we measure these different policies in each state around the country and it's a kind of a red yellow and green with of course green being the best and Mississippi has does not have a green in any of the categories so we've got a lot of work to do in fighting cancer through policy change. Now are we
0: still in the same place that we were last year or has there been any improvement?
3: Uh, Yes, we are in the same place um, that we have been in for several years. So um, we have got um, work to do on improving and getting from red to yellow to ultimately having a green scorecard for our state.
0: Does that mean that we are last compared to other
3: states? Well, I think there are two states in the country that, uh, with Mississippi being one of them, that have no green marks on their scorecard
0: can you give us an idea of what some of those nine areas are
3: sure Um, like I said they're related to access to care cancer prevention quality of life Um, some of those are you know our smoke-free workplace policies in our state our tobacco tax our tanning bed regulations and restrictions for minors um, establishing a palliative care council in our state Um, providing smoking cessation resources for our Medicaid population, Um, spending an appropriate amount of money based on CDC guidelines around tobacco control and prevention, appropriate amount of screening for the breast and cervical cancer early detection program through our Mississippi State Department of Health. So those are um, just some of the more localized um, programs and things that um, we have in our state that we have some work to do on.
0: There is a major focus this year on protecting young people from tanning beds.
3: Right. Melanoma is on the rise, and 17 states have passed legislation that restricts those under 18 from using a tanning bed. The FDA has um, is requiring a black box warning on the actual devices. So they are dangerous. They are um, a cancer-causing device. So we need to do what we can. This is a public health issue to keep our young people out of those and for them to know the dangers of a tanning. Bed.
0: So is there a, a certain age by which they should wait until they start using them?
3: They're not safe for anyone to okay. use okay. Um, but you know like many other laws that we have in our state, once you're an adult, you know, you make those decisions, you know, on your own. But we believe that it is a public health issue that the Mississippi legislature needs to address for our minors and protect minors from the dangers of using the tanning beds and the ultraviolet race.
0: So there currently is no legislation on tanning beds?
3: Mississippi currently has what's called a parental consent law. So if you're under 14, your parent has to be with you to use a tanning bed or if you're between 14 and 16, you have to have basically a permission slip from your parent to use it. But, you know, that's also an enforcement issue. And, you know, there are many, many tanning beds and devices throughout the state. And the Mississippi State Department of Health regulates those and those facilities. And they, I think, have one person to do that for the entire state. So just to have an all-out prohibition for minors would be best um, for their health and also for enforcement purposes.
0: So that sounds like that'll be something that's on the list of issues in the 2019 legislative session.
3: It is. It is something we've worked on for the past few years. We have a coalition of over 20 organizations um, working closely with the Mississippi State Medical Association on this issue, have many dermatologists very involved with this. Gail Wicker, um, wife of our U.S Senator Roger Wicker, is a spokesperson for us on this issue. So we've, we've got a lot of um, adv- advocate support um, just and some you know with leg- some legislative support just need to work on our legislative leadership and on allowing this to move through the process.
0: And another area where you've done quite a bit of work and have some advocate partners is on tobacco control. So right. the tobacco tax, is that a next focus for you
3: all? It is. It is. Mississippi last raised our tax in 2009. We got a 50-cent increase at that time, so we're currently at 68 cents in Mississippi. However, the national average is $1.75. So um, we think it's time that Mississippi revisits this issue. We had legislation introduced this past year to raise it by $1.50 and actually got a little momentum and hope to improve on that and really work with our lawmakers. Um, to see that this is an issue that they can, you know, has multiple benefits. Primarily, it saves saves lives. Studies show that a significant increase in the price of cigarettes is the best way to prevent children from ever starting to smoke and one of the best ways to get adults to quit. So it not only saves lives, it it generates revenue for our state, which is much needed, but it also reduces health care costs in our state.
0: What are some ways that Mississippians can support you all in your efforts to get some laws on the books
3: and change some policies? The first thing they can do is get involved with the American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network. We are... um one of the voices for cancer patients and those affected by cancer in our state. You can visit acscan.org to find out how to become more involved and also to see many more details about this report that's being released. But we um, keep our advocates up to date on issues related to cancer awareness and prevention that are going through not only the Mississippi legislature but at the local level and our municipalities and also in Congress. So we keep you up to date but we also ask you to make a call to action you know call your legislator and let them know if something's important to you or when you run into them at church or in the grocery store talk to them about you know not only cancer issues that may be important to you but any issues you know they hear from lobbyists each and every day when they're in session at the state capitol but they really like to hear from their constituents so write those letters send those emails and talk to your legislators and
0: again, the report can be found at, what's the website?
3: www.acscan.org. Www.acscan,
0: Kimberly Hughes is the Government Relations Director for ACS Can Mississippi. Kim, thanks so much for coming by today.
2: Okay, thank you for having me. Coming up in our book club, meet Mississippi author Julian Rankin with his new book, Catfish Dream. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
3: Support for MPB comes from the Woodward Hines Education Foundation, committed to helping more Mississippians obtain post-secondary credentials, college certificates, and degrees that lead to employment. More information about Woodward Hines Education Foundation at woodwardhines.org. This
2: is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The Mississippi Book Festival is only a week away, and as we prepare for the literary lawn party, we're sitting down with some of Mississippi's authors, and today's book club, Meet Julian Rankin. His new book, Catfish Dream, centers around the experiences, family, and struggles of Ed Scott Jr., a prolific farmer in the Mississippi Delta and the first ever non-white owner and operator of a catfish plant in the nation. Rankin, a graduate of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and art director, tells MPB's Karen Brown more about his heroic portrait of Scott.
1: In 2013, I heard about Ed Scott Jr., who is the protagonist and hero of this book, and his daughter, Willina Scott White, who lives in Cleveland, Mississippi, was the family historian, and Ed Scott was in his 90s then, and. I just went up and paid the family a visit, and Ed Scott Jr. unfurled this tale before me, and it just was a story that was begging to be written. And so from then on, I began interviewing the family and, and sitting with Ed Scott and his lawyer, his colleagues, and, and from then on, the book just took form. Tell us about his catfish past. So his high and in, in the title of the book, Catfish Dream, comes from the early 80s when he broke into the catfish business the Delta was experiencing a catfish boom. And as a black farmer, Ed Scott had trouble getting into the business. And so he was unable to get funding from the government or encouraged, highly encouraged, if he was going to get funding, to have catfish ponds, but he didn't have money to dig them. So he, over the course of 1980, dug his own ponds, 160 acres of row crop fields. He turned into ponds six feet under football fields of of catfish ponds and went back and got enough money to start stocking the, the ponds. And When his fish were ready to process, he wanted to get them processed with a local processor, but he couldn't get stock in the plant to process them because he was African-American. So then he had another dilemma, how do I get these fish to market? And he constructed a catfish processing plant out of an old tractor shed Oh my. and opened that in 1983. And not long after that, the government ended up foreclosing on a lot of his land. He had over a thousand acres, including these catfish ponds, but he continued to process. And so his story was one of trying to access a, a free market. He wanted free access, just like everyone should, to these opportunities and dreams he had. But he kept running up against discrimination and the legacy of land ownership that was not advantageous to African-American farmers, but he persisted. That was his high point, And it went way back into time when his father turned from a sharecropper to a landowner and really embodied just this legacy of self-determination.
0: Before he was foreclosed on, was he
1: able to have a business? Was he successful in that business or were there a lot of roadblocks for him? Despite the roadblocks, when he was in control of what he should be able to control, which was his business, it was wonderfully successful. So he was able to dig his ponds, stock them, be vertically integrated. And like I said, when the government came for his land, they also took his catfish, which he had fed with some government money. And so this was the time when USDA was pouring billions of dollars into agriculture all over the country. And they, there was a lot of discrimination, which was settled in a class action suit in the 90s. When they took his fish, they literally emptied all the ponds? Correct. And so at that point in in 1983, he was he'd only been vertically integrated for a short time. And the promise of that was stripped away. So all he had left was his processing plant. And then he began getting minority contracts, buying fish, cash and turned into a processor and and fry master. And so for another seven years, up until 1990, he still employed dozens of African-American workers in the community, um, gave them dignified labor, uh, sold to Delta State and Alcorn and outside of Mississippi, and continued as long as he could until the industry and started constricting the flow of supply. His supply lines kind of drained up. But to give us perspective, if people remember, you know, McDonald's had a catfish sandwich in the '90s. You know, this was a mainstream thing, and it's a little different now. I think it's ebbed a little bit, but this was this was a big money operation, and he was the only. African American doing this is Ed still alive? He passed in 2015 and after he lost his land he he pers- he continued to fight to get it back for 30 years. And so uh, the class action Pigford v Glickman uh, suit against USDA came about in the late 90s. Ed Scott waited and waited to have his arbitration. So 2012 he finally gets a settlement. 2013, they buy all the land back, a thousand acres that they had lost. And so before he passed, he was able to see his sons and, and daughters take control of that land again, and they're now farming row crops. So what was a sad chapter with the foreclosures really has come full circle, mm-hmm. and as much justice as can be said to be have, have been restored has been. And so that's kind of a beautiful thing. And now he's no longer Mississippi's best-kept secret, thanks to Julian Rank. And the book is called Catfish Dream, Ed Scott's Fight for His Family Farm, and Racial Justice in the Mississippi Delta. Julian, thanks so much. Thank you.
2: August is National Catfish Month. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio. Coming up at 9, it's Creature Comforts. At 10, it's Season Pass. And 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Kids and Teens. If you missed a part of the show today, you can find past episodes and other programming online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. Join us tomorrow, same time, for the next edition.